Amen. Before I ask you to rise and read Scripture, I want to just uh, say a couple words about the text that we're going to be reading here in a moment. Uh, if, if you're paying attention and you noticed that last week we ended our text reading last week in chapter 13, verse 1, and this morning we're also going to begin in chapter 13, verse 1. And if you open up your Bibles or even have your apps open, you notice that our editors have made a bit of an odd decision in how they have broken up these verses. As you may or may not know, in the original Hebrew, there wasn't nice, neat paragraphs, and they didn't have editors giving us nice little headlines as to what the particular section was about. It was one long manuscript, and our editors have done us favors, and they've tried to break things down. But as you can see, there's a little bit of a choice to be made here this morning. Does verse 1 of chapter 13 belong in chapter 12, or does it belong in chapter 13? And as you can say, they really, as you can see, they really didn't make up their mind very well. They stuck it kind of in both places. And they stuck it at the end of chapter 12 and at the beginning of chapter 13. Why is that? As I've read and as I've continued to read last week and this week, it seems to me that it really is, whether they intended to do it or not, a powerful decision to be made. Because it's important to both sections of Zechariah, both to chapter 12 and in chapter 13. So it's right and it's good that we give proper heed to this one particular verse. So with that, I ask you to rise as we read God's Word together from chapter 13, verse 1, to the conclusion of the chapter, verse 9. Hear the reading of God's Word. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will also remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil. For a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks me, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say, The Lord is my God. Amen. So far, the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for your Word this day. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will pour yourself out upon us, just as you did so many years ago, that you would fill us with the rush of your presence, that you would guide my words to those gathered here, that they would see and know of your grace and of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember the day that uh, we moved here to Texas some years ago now. 
believe it or not. I remember that we were in the middle of an unusually warm late summer, for it was like end of July, early August when we arrived here. And if it's an unusually warm summer in Texas, what does that mean? It's downright hot, right? A normal summer in Texas is hot, but what's unusually warm, it's even hotter. I remember the day that our storage containers arrived, and some of you were there to help us unload our containers. But I remember it was the work in the heat and in the sweat that I remember And I have now said to many people of trying to describe the heat in Texas to my friends that don't live here, I say, I measure the heat by the number of shirts I go through when I cut the grass, whether it's a one-shirt day, a two-shirt day, or a three-shirt or a four-shirt day. I remember that day, it wasn't one shirt, it wasn't two shirts, it wasn't three shirts, but it was four shirts, and I thought to myself, what have we gotten into coming here to this hot place? But I also remember... That at the end of the move-in process, all I really wanted to do was go inside of the air conditioning and have a nice cold drink to sit down and to have a glass of water and to just relax. But I don't know if you're like me and you've gone through four shirts. I promise you, you don't want to be standing near me. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not a pleasant smell. Let's just be honest about this, right? It's the stench of living in Texas in the middle of the summertime when you're working outside. So I couldn't just sit down and have a glass, a glass of water. I looked forward also to a cold shower, to wash away the day's work, to wash away the sweat, to wash away the stink. Because this is what the shower does. This is what that water does for us. It washes away all of that stuff. In that moment, there was nothing better. Nothing better than that cold shower to wash away the garden. This is the image of Zechariah chapter 13. A humanity that's covered in grime. A humanity that's covered in sweat and stench and nastiness. And people don't want to stand by them. And all they really need is to be washed. Covered in the sweat and the mess of what? specifically in Zechariah 13, covered in the sweat of running after other gods and also leading other people to other gods. This is what Zechariah is prophesying to the people of Israel. Stop running after other gods. Stop teaching and preaching and prophesying about other gods. And we find them, they find themselves just as we find ourselves, covered in the muck of self-vindication, self-gratification, self-medication, all of us are covered in the same mess in our sin and misery. And this is what we saw last week as well. Our sin and our guilt are no small things. There's a price, a heavy price that's paid because of our mess. Because we've gone through way more than four shirts, but all the shirts that we own. Our sin and guilt are no small things, and grace does not come cheap. Our sin and lust after everything other than God comes at a price. As we look upon the cross as we saw last week, we see that this is the price that was paid. The only Son of God, the holy and righteous spotless Lamb of God, is the one who takes on our sin and guilt and shame. His sacrifice, His love, His grace, His life, His death, 
was the price that paid for our uncleanness, for our grime, our sweat, our uncleanness. But there are some at the time of Zechariah, and there are even some now that want to continue to look away from the cross because that's just easier to do. When I was in college and after I was married, I worked for my father-in-law in the back of an auto body shop. I remember while I was in college, I worked odd and end jobs, just doing various things. And then I was moved into the paint, body, the paint area of the body shop. My job was to prepare cars to get painted. And my job was to tape off areas, to tape off windows, to spray primer, to spray some cars every now and then. And you begin to be in this environment where paint was in the air and, and things were, they smelled and they were potent in your nose. But after some time, I moved into the office and I started working in the office jobs and customers would come in and they would say, it smells like paint. And I remember saying to myself or thinking to myself, I don't smell the paint anymore. We've gotten so used to the smell of paint, even as potent and as pungent as paint is. We've all been there, right, where you paint your house and all you smell is fresh paint. Now imagine spraying paint, and that is in the air, and it attacks your nose, and it assaults your senses. But after a while, after years of working in a body shop, I couldn't smell the paint. But someone that came in could smell the paint because it attacked their senses. This is what happens in our sin and misery, right? We're so covered in our stench and in our grime. It's like being in that auto body shop for years and years and years. We don't smell it anymore. We don't see it anymore. The paint could be blue, it could be green, it could be yellow. We don't even see the color. We don't even smell the smell. It's our stench. It's our grime. It's our aroma. And we lose track of the seriousness of what's going on. We try and wash ourselves. We try and cover it up. But if you can't smell it anymore, and you can't see it anymore, what sense is there in trying to wash it? Because we don't know it's there. It's just so accustomed to who we are and what we do and how we do it that we forget that it's even there. And so here in Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 13, the prophet is calling us back to have the cross attack our senses to be able to show us and point us, hey, this is what's happening. This is the actual price of what's going on in your hearts and your lives. For some of us, we may understand it, but we try to cover it up with the perfume of self-medication or self-justification we rationalize out our actions with the idea that grace will cover me. I'm okay. I don't really need to be washed because I have grace. And we lose sight of the cross. And we lose sight of the price that's paid. So this morning, I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us to continue to look at the cross just as we saw last week and see not only the sacrifice and the sorrow of the cross as we saw in chapter 12, but this morning, I want us to see also again and again the Savior pierced. And I want us to see that the pierced Savior provides us with something. He provides us with this fountain of cleansing. 
the kind of fountain that cleanses us from sin and uncleanness. For this is what we desperately, desperately need, isn't it? It's to be washed in the Savior's fountain of grace. In a section of God's Word that we don't really often read too much, there's a wonderful description of this fountain of grace. And it's not here in Zechariah, but it's at the end of the story. It's, it's in Revelation, and I don't know how many of you just jump into Revelation just for the fun of it, maybe to try to be shocked or amazed, but Revelation is this odd, strange, weird book, as we all know, in some sense similar to Zechariah, as it is a weird, strange, odd book. But Zechariah and John both see something amazing. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, I'm not really sure what is the whole entire context. I did a little bit of research, but we don't have time to, to go into all of that into Revelation 7. But John seeing a great number of people come into the throne room of heaven. People from all nations, all tongues, all tribes are entering into the throne room of heaven. And there's a conversation that takes place between John and one of the elders of heaven. And one of the elders says to John, who are these people? And John replied, sir, you know. And the elder said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The fountain then, as we saw last week and as we see this week, the fountain then is the very blood of the Lamb. The fountain that cleanses us from our sin and uncleanness has at its headwaters the cross of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus removes the stench of our uncleanness. And so once again, never take your eyes off the cross. Friends, this is the very heart of the gospel found in Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 13. We cannot wash ourselves because too often we don't see it and we don't smell it. We don't see the necessity to be washed because it's just who we are. But the Lord Jesus continues to wash, to wash us with His blood. Each and every day we are covered in grace. His grace. When I come in from a run or working in the yard, as I've said, no one wants to be near me. Some may say that they don't even know me or recognize me. We won't name names, but that's been said. This is the effect of sin in our relationship with the Lord. In our sin, the relationship between us and the Lord is broken, and the Lord doesn't want to be near us. He can't be near us because He is a holy and righteous God, and we have gone through a number of shirts. The Lord doesn't recognize us in our sin and misery. So something must happen. The cross must happen. The fountain of grace must happen. The blood washing must happen. Why? Because the very root of our sin is a broken relationship. What grace does then is restore this relationship between sinners and a holy and righteous God. Verse 1 says that there is a fountain opened up to wash us clean. Verse 9 then says to us and gives us the result of this washing. So look at, with me at verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 13, the very last verse of the chapter. Verse 9 gives us the result of this new cleanness. What does it say? They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. 
The gospel then is on full display in the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. Grace is opened. It's poured out. It flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. And the result is a right and good relationship with the Lord. It's restored. The outcome of grace is not some magical, cosmic, untenable concept. The outcome of grace is a real relationship with the Lord our God. Christianity then, of course, is not a list of things to do or not to do. The belief in Jesus as our Savior and God is not simply that I don't go to hell or I do go to heaven. That's not the end game. The end game is not getting out of hell or going to heaven. The prize of grace is Jesus. The prize of forgiveness is a relationship with the Lord, our God, the creator of the universe. This is what we have. It's a real life relationship with a real life God. The cleansing of our uncleanness means simply that we no longer have the stench of sin upon us. And then what happens? The Lord embraces us. He gives us a hug and says, you are no longer dirty or smelly or stinky, but you are mine and I am yours. And that's what verse 9 tells us. I am theirs and they are mine. But even this seems a bit foreign to us, doesn't it? We talk in concepts and Christian worlds and Christian conversations about things like relationship with the Lord. What does that mean? What does that look like? Who has an idea of how to describe what this relationship is? But the gospel is a relationship. These are ways we describe it. But that doesn't make sense to a lot of people on the streets in Arlington or Texas or the country or the world. Or maybe even doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. What does it mean to have a relationship with the Lord? What does it mean for us to be God's and for him to be ours. It seems to me that Zechariah 13 then begins to answer that very question. It answers the question, what does it mean to be the Lord's? And as we begin to enter into the answer of that question, it's fitting to understand the radical nature of what a relationship with the Lord is. What it is at the core. And what impacts or results does it have? A relationship with the creator of the universe is a radical one. It's not an ordinary relationship. It's not even a marriage. It's something more. Something radical. In order for us to understand that, we need to understand something about God. I've been doing some reading and just some kind of investigative reporting in the last couple weeks about a concept and about an attribute of the Lord about how the Lord himself is an essential being. The Lord is an essential being. What does that mean? It means that he doesn't need anybody to come before him. It means he doesn't need anybody to come after him. He is, I am. He exists. In and of himself, he exists. So what does that mean? Essentially, at the heart of it all, he doesn't need Ryan, that's for sure. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need us to flourish, to exist, to be. 
because he is essential. He exists in and of himself. He is outside, as R.C. Sproul would say, outside the chain of existence. No one came before him. No one comes after him. He just is. We, on the other hand, are what they call in theological terms contingent beings. We had to have a mom and a dad before us. We have children and family after us. We need each other to exist. We need each other to survive. God does not. And so here are two different beings. An essential being that doesn't need anyone else to survive or to flourish or to succeed in his will and in his mission. And we have contingent beings who desperately need others. And this essential being says to you this morning, I love you. And I want to be in a relationship with you. Even in your stench. Even in your sin. Even in your guilt and misery. This to me is the heart of what the relationship actually looks like. And what it means. And shows us the heights and the depths and the width that the Lord goes to to love and care for you and for me. This shows what gaps He's overcome what chasms he's overcome in his love for us. And so, what does that look like to have this radical relationship? What are the radical impacts, the effects that an essential being has to contingent beings? What does that look like for us? Zechariah 13 answers those questions for us. The first impact, the first result that it has is another radical thing. It's radical removal. The first result of this relationship with the Lord is found in the first three verses of chapter 13. So cast your eyes with me on the first three verses. We talked a lot at length last week about a fountain of grace and even a little bit already this morning. But the fountain is absolutely essential to this radical relationship. The fountain of grace is essential to this essential being coming to contingent beings, from a holy and righteous God to sinful people like you and me. This fountain is the very essential aspect. Why? Because of what the fountain does. It washes away the uncleanness of our hearts, of our minds, of our souls, all of us. But according to the prophet Zechariah, what the fountain ultimately does is wash away our, our idolatry. And it radically removes the stain of our idolatry. In these verses, we see the Lord's disdain for idolatry, don't we? Anything that we long for more than the Lord is an idol. And we see the lengths to which the Lord is willing to go to remove the idolatry from the relationship. The thing that jumps out to me in these verses here this morning, as well as the ones from last week, is the weight of sin. The seriousness of sin. It would be better to not have been born, Zechariah says, than if you were to worship other idols or to false prophesy. Do you see that? It would be better that you weren't born if you have anything other than the Lord God as your center of worship. And it would be better if you had not been born if you false prophesied or led someone away from the Lord. This is the weight of sin and idolatry. And here, the prophet links the two things together. Idolatry and false prophecy 
are linked together. Not as identical, but certainly related. This is interesting to me in the sense that at the heart of idolatry is the love of something other than the Lord. When that love takes root, it begins to flow out of us, doesn't it? So if we worship something and we have are passionate about something other than the Lord, it begins to enter into who we are, our identity, and it has to come out when we begin to show others and ourselves and to talk about it. Because this is what we love. And we're drawing other people in away from the Lord. When we look at sections like this, it's difficult for us to think that these verses have any bearing on my life. I get it. I don't think many of us would sit here and say, well, I am an idol worshiper or I am a false prophet. I don't think that's what we would say. But if we look closely at our hearts, if we look closely at our lives, we see that we do have things in our lives that we love far more than the Lord. And we like to talk about them. They can be as simple as another person. I love my children more than I love the Lord. I love my spouse more than I love the Lord. I love my job. I love my money. I love my power. I love my control. I love to manipulate more than I love the Lord. Or it can be as complex of idolatry as the manipulation of others. Self-gratification, self-medication. And as we pursue these things, or the thing that we love the most, what happens is that we begin to believe our own desires are justified and accurate. We believe that we deserve the power. We deserve the control. We deserve the money. We deserve that we should be able to manipulate others to our gain. We promote our own justification and rationalize our understanding because it's our worldview. This is idolatry. This is false prophecy. Therefore, as Paul tells us, we are guilty. We all need a fountain. We all need a fountain of grace to wash over us. And this is what the fountain of grace does. It radically removes the stain of our idolatry and false prophecy. We are always going to be tempted and we're always going to be tortured by the enemy to run to anything and anyone but the Lord. However, if we are in a right relationship with the Lord, we cannot be removed. We cannot be outside of the presence of the Lord. Because the Lord does the heavy lifting. He does the removal. He is high and lifted up in order that our guilt and shame would be radically removed. That's what the fountain does. The second impact that Zechariah tells us about having a radical relationship with the Lord is revelation. When we're in a relationship with the Lord, there's a radical revelation that takes place. So as our sins are removed, our guilt is removed, something else is revealed to us. To be called the Lord is a special and wonderful gift that the Lord gives to us. As we just saw, he removes sin and guilt and shame. In addition to the removal of this uncleanness, he also reveals our sin to us. In verses 4 to 6, Zechariah gives us a peek into the heart of the one who understands the working of the Lord in their life. 
It is a revelation of the sin and guilt and shame. In verse 4, the false prophet has it revealed to him that he is no prophet at all, and he is ashamed of his actions. In his sin and misery, he was sold into the slavery of sin and now has the scars on his back to show it. This is a heavy and serious image. Especially in our day and in our times when these images are so frequently brought before us. Rightfully so, I would argue. Our country has a guilty past of slavery and beatings. We have been guilty of buying and selling people into slavery. This is a part of our story, and this is the hard part about something being radical. That things are revealed to us. And the radical nature of it is, oftentimes, it's very painful. But this morning, this message is not about necessarily that this morning, about our sordid past as a country, but rather our sordid path and past as individuals within this body of Christ. When we are the Lord's, He radically reveals our sin and uncleanness. We begin to smell the paint all over again. We begin to see the sweat-stained shirts. We begin to see the hurt and the pain and the sin and the guilt and the shame. And it can often be painful and grotesque. That does not mean we shy away from it, however. It means that we run towards something. Just as we run towards something when we come in from a hard day's work in the Texas summer. We don't run away from the shower. We don't run away from the pool. We run towards it. We run to be clean. We run to be covered in the cool water of His grace and forgiveness. We must not run to our devices. We must not run away, but say or say that grace has covered me and all is well. I can still live any way I desire. May it never be, as Paul says. But in the revelation of our sin, may we to the fountain fly as we sung already this morning. Because it is there and only there that we find true and real comfort and rest for our weary souls. And finally, what does it mean to be the Lord's? It means to have radical removal of sin. It means to have our sins radically revealed to us. And it means, yes, a radical relationship with the Lord our God. In all of the hardships of life, the Lord does not abandon us. But rather uses the hardships, the difficult things, the hard things to draw us closer. It says to us in the final verses of Zechariah 13, He is to remove the unwanted impurities and take us to Himself as the pure and precious gold and silver of holiness and righteousness. And this is an illustration that has been used over and over and over again, isn't it? It's one that we're really familiar with. However, that illustration has been used and it's been abused and it's been tired. Because I don't know if we fully understand just what's happening here. How many times have we heard that the Lord uses tragedy and hardship as, and trials to get us through in order that we would be closer to Him? It's okay. It's okay to go through the hard times because the Lord's making you a better person because of it. How many times have we heard that? That the Lord is somehow allowing and concocting some kind of torture chamber for us in order that we would be bigger and better and stronger because of the hardships and the trials. 
Well, he's some kind of torture chamber master, concocting some new form of torture just to see if we measure up, if we're good enough, if we're strong enough, if we're big enough. There's sense, there is a sense in which this is true. The Lord does allow hard things to happen. The Lord does allow difficult times to happen. But he's not sitting in heaven with an evil grin concocting new ways of torture that we would be refined just to see if we're strong enough. Friends, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. If that was who God is, then the entire of Zechariah's book is for naught. If that's who God is, the entirety of the Bible is for naught, because that's not grace. Let's again return to verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day there will be a fountain opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There is difficulty. There is hardship. There are trials. We are dirty. There are difficult things in life. This has been revealed to us. We know this very well in our own lives. But the trial and the judgment and the refining is not taken up as a requirement for us in this relationship. For the Lord Jesus took up that trial. The Lord Jesus took that up. The radical relationship that we have with the Lord is that He is the one who went into the pit of the fire of hell and torture so that we wouldn't have to. It's Jesus who was forsaken in this relationship, not you and not me. The radical relationship is defined by the radical grace so that when we do experience tragedy, and we will and we do, when heartache and sorrow do come our way, we know that Jesus goes before us. We know that Jesus defeated hell itself. That Jesus defeated death itself. And that He rose again victorious in order that we would cry out. And then Zechariah 13 tells us, He hears you. And he says to you in the middle of all of the hot, sweaty days of our toil and heartache, you are mine. You are mine. What a Lord. What a Savior. Friends, this morning, frolic in the fountain of grace. Splash in it. Play in it dance in it because it's a wonderful gift given to us this morning. May we all say this day, the Lord is my God. Why? Because He's cleaned me from my uncleanness. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that You love us to the point that You've given us Yourself that You revealed our sin to us, that You removed our sin from us, and that You are in relationship with us. And so, Lord, now as we come to this table, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to see and to know once again the greatness of Your grace. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.